Uh, greetings. Welcome all to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard, and I am joined, as usual, by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Senator Tom Umberg, Democrat from Orange County, uh, who knows a lot about MICRA. And I thought we'd ask you first all about MICRA. So what's with the deal? And I guess my first question is, why now? I covered this my first day in Sacramento 40 years ago. So what yeah. happened? Well, I I've only was elected 32 years ago, so um, no, this is this is a perennial issue, perennial topic, perennial challenge, and um, I think anybody who's been in and around uh, politics in Sacramento has heard about the famous napkin deal. Um, and l- let me start at the beginning. Um, originally, there was an issue as to malpractice, medical malpractice and how damages should be limited. And a fight that was ultimately resolved in 1975, long before most of your listeners and viewers were alive, uh, was resolved with an agreement as to limiting what are called non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases to $250,000. Non-economic damages are, you know, for example, your lost earnings, but there are other damages that somebody suffers, you know, the pain and suffering. I mean, you know, if you're, for example, a victim of a burn, the fact that you missed, you know, a couple months of work doesn't, in whatever that wage was, doesn't adequately compensate you. And so it it was agreed that that would be limited to $250,000. That was, gosh, many years ago, that was 40 years ago, 40 some years ago. Um, And periodically there've been either legislative initiatives or ballot initiatives to, modify that, um, and always hard fought. And, and thus far, there's been no, no agreement, no modification. Um, and as everyone knows, things, costs have risen, uh, the costs of, you know, of litigating have risen exponentially. So uh, there was a proposed ballot initiative by a fellow named Nick Raleigh to uh, basically uh, radically change the level of compensation. And that brought um, the insurance industry, hospitals, doctors, uh, consumer attorneys, those lawyers who represent those who've been injured all together to see if they couldn't work out an agreement to be able to come to a compromise that was fair. And so very recently, that compromise has been struck between those major institutions. The compromise uh, provides for an increase in non-economic damages. Uh, I could, I'd be happy to tell you what those those numbers are, um, no. but 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 it increases the uh, doesn't make them automatic. Just increases the the ceiling on non-economic damages, and there's also a, a basically a two percent cost of living increase over the years. Uh, that means that the ballot initiative will, if if signed by the governor, if this compromise is signed by the governor, the the ballot initiative will will come off the ballot. And we'll live with this as the law for the next, you know, ten but, years or so. Was there some magic tipping point here? Was there something this time around? You think that sort of sparked the deal to come, sparked it to come together? It's been it even went to the ballot once eight years ago. Right. It got tossed out. Two thirds of the voters didn't want to change micro. Mm-hmm. But there have been multiple negotiations and deals over this. Something this time was different. I were they just exhausted about going to the ballot again nobody wants to spend a lot of dough or did the governor weigh in and say you know let's get this settled and get on with our lives or what do you think 
Uh, well, I, I think, I mean, I suppose the, the question better asked to, you know, Nick Rowley, the, the uh, father of the initiative, but I'll go ahead and speculate. Good. Because that's what we're here for. We're here just to yeah. speculate and pontificate. Isn't that the purpose of this? So yeah. I'll speculate. You speculate and we misquote and that's the way it goes. So yeah. go ahead. Well, that's, that's the fun of it all. So uh, that the dynamic had changed. And so whenever you're assessing something as big as this and the institutional um, players who have equity, whether it's the hospitals, the doctors, the consumer attorneys, or whomever, or the consumer protection organizations, th they weigh in. They say, you know, look, at there's a ballot initiative. Uh, the electorate has changed. It has changed over the last eight years. And this thing could, cha this could ch change and could pass and could be from our interests much worse. From certain other interests, much much better. So you do a risk benefit analysis, and you say, you know what? Sure. I think I think I'd rather eliminate the risk, and I'd rather go for a short thing, which is a short thing here. I think is a is a fairer compromise. And so I think that's what it was. I think there was a sense that th that this could pass, and so uh, but it might not pass. So let let's let's come together and see if we can't strike some sort of an agreement that seems fair to all of us. And I'm sure that 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 there'll be some Californians that won't think it's fair. I mean, there's 40 million of us, so we're not all gonna agree. Do you think it'll get out, um, assuming it has a good shot at this, it has a good shot at getting out of the Senate, getting out of the assembly. The governor issued a statement saying he likes the idea. So that's right. sort of a spur right there, don't you think? Yeah. Well, I have a close relationship with the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty confident that it'll get out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, just for your listeners and viewers, I chair the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, so, uh, and my sense is that this is by, well, I know it's bipartisan. I mean, I've heard from some of my colleagues that, that they are supportive on both sides of the aisle. So I, I fully expect that it will, um, I fully expect it will get to the governor's desk. There was one piece of language in there I was looking at. Um, uh, it said that the agreement expands the ability to uh, for actions against medical institutions. Mm -hmm. are, are they talking about HMOs or hospitals or clinics or everybody? So or? It, it provides for sort of different um, entities. So the, the limits apply, just taking a hypothetical. Let's assume that, that uh, a doctor is negligent in the performance of his or her responsibilities. Uh, and the hospital wherein that negligence occurs also is, is negligent. Uh -huh. And so uh, you can file a claim and recover, potentially, depending upon you know, whether you prove that negligence against both the hospital as well as the doctor separately. And the limitations apply separately to each of those institutions, the doctor and the hospital. So yes, John, you're right. For, for the legal community, I, I know they've always been wanting to modify micro to raise the cap and at least peg it to the to inflation. Um, the fees, uh, the benefit to the legal, to the litigator who's actually bringing the case comes from a percentage of the non-economic damages. Is that, is that correct or no? No, no, the, well, it depends on the agreement, but the, but the, the compromise, the micro compromise 
uh, has two different levels. So it's uh, 25%. Uh, the, the, the maximum contingent fee is 25% um, on cases prior to those going to trial. And it is, um, let me just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna verify here before I, um, before I confirm. And it is, uh, yes, and it's 33% for claims um, after the complaint is filed. So before the complaint is filed, it's 25% maximum. After the complaint is filed, it's 33% maximum. Okay. Um, you can petition the court for more if there's special circumstances, but that, that for example, that 25% comes from the overall recovery. Okay, that was my, it's the overall, it's not limited yes. to just one segment. No, okay. no, it's, it's the overall recovery. Okay. Um, but the, what, what is not considered, I think, by most Californians um, is that bringing a lawsuit is extremely expensive and it gets more expensive every year. I, I just, uh, I'm actually a practicing lawyer myself. Uh, my partners probably don't agree, but I, I think I am. And so uh, just we just finished a case in February. It's a long trial. It's about a two and a half month trial. It took us five years to prepare. And wow. our costs, I'm not talking about what the attorneys charged. I'm talking about costs. Costs are, for example, the cost of taking a deposition, the cost of a filing fee, the cost of retaining an expert were well over $400,000. Yikes. So, wow. so if, if you have a case, a uh, medical malpractice case, and in the past, if you're limited to $250,000 and your costs are $400,000, that really limits the availability of folks seeking access and redress. You know, I remember uh, years ago as a reporter, I got uh, threatened with uh, legal action for a story I wrote. Mm -hmm. which by the way was absolutely ironclad but i got threatened <laughs> and i had to appear i was at the ap then i had to appear uh for a deposition and the attorney representing me was from a firm the ap had hired uh out of new york and uh very nice person very smart gave me some great advice uh one piece of advice i remember is if hey if they ask you the time uh if they say do you have the time and you can say yes but you don't give up the time. I, everybody knows that, but me, I learned that. But uh, I found out later, just sitting with me on the deposition, which was less than a couple hours, $700. Plus, I think we got together and had a brief meeting. And I thought, this is in the uh, early 90s. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, I wouldn't last 10 minutes if we had some lengthy, serious litigation and I had to put the no, bill. That's right. Out, you know? that's right. That's right. That's right. Now I'm just talking to make sure, John, I'm distinguishing costs from the fees, the, uh, the costs, when I said over $400,000 in costs, I'm not talking about the attorney's fees. I'm not talking about the fees that the client was charged for uh, the attorney's services, the attorney's work. I'm talking about, you know, what the court reporters charge for depositions. I'm talking about the filing fees, that kind of thing. That was over $400,000. So um, yes, it, it can be, it, it, it can be, uh, cost prohibitive to file an action. So the insurers always made the case that uh, don't mess with micro because any increases in the, that we're pegging them to inflation and raising that level uh, 
would have the ultimate effect of raising insurance premiums. And ultimately, it's the consumers are going to get stuck more. Does that resonate with you? Does that make sense to you? Oh, I, I think that um, I, I think the prospect of Californians basically not being able to access healthcare if micro change, that's that was I'd heard that in the past. I think that is um, overblown. Um, I, I think that the you know this is an interesting issue and it is of great importance to individuals who have been injured. I mean, of highest saliency. Um, cost of insurance premiums going up is of saliency to every Californian. And so what may be of intense interest to a very small group may be of general interest to a larger group. And so the, the, you know, appealing to the sort of the overall general interest has ultimately carried the day, most part in terms of any micro change. But, but certainly, I mean, there's, um, it's a societal question. You know, do we yeah. do right now? It's very difficult, very difficult to bring a, a medical malpractice case, very difficult to bring a medical malpractice case because of the limits, because of the costs and those kinds of things. Um, and so it's a societal question. Do, do we want to uh, compensate those who have been injured? Uh, when I say we, I mean, whether it's carriers or the individuals responsible for those damages, do we want them to be able to be adequately compensated? And so, you know, that's, that's the question before the legislature. That's the question before potentially before voters had this initiative, or if this initiative ever comes to the ballot. Well, you know, in talking about how long this issue has been around, uh, Dustin Corcoran is the head of the CMA right now. And I'm pretty sure he first got hired at CMA in 1998 to work on a micro initiative. So, you know, this will be full circle. Maybe it'll close under his watch. You can, you know, check that off his list. Yeah. No, I literally, it was old hat. By 1998, it had whiskers. Believe me. <laughs> exactly right. I, I, you know, it was old hat in 1990 when I was first elected. You know, uh, uh, when it first cranked up in the mid 70s, the, I remember distinctly in San Diego, the big issue down in Southern California was the anesthesiologists. Correct. Uh, they were having, they got a, whatever their monthly insurance premiums were, but they were high, but they skyrocketed you know, five, six, seven fold. Uh, and that was one of, at least down there, one of the roots of this whole, of the micro reform came from, came from the anesthetists and the anesthesiologists who needed mm -hmm. some relief. They were very loud, very well, organized and they had enough dough to make their you know case i think you know well and that's you know back to a societal issue that's the balancing test the balancing test is balancing those who are injured and whether they can be in some ways compensated uh probably not fully but at least partially compensated um versus you know, creating a stranglehold on whether it's anesthesiologists, some other practice of medicine that, that may be riskier than other practices. You know, so for example, you know, there, there, are, I mean, there are certain risks in everything. There's certain risks in, in, in practicing medicine and, and some areas of medicine are riskier than others. So- You're um, obviously a Senate Judiciary Chair. You've got a sense of your committee, but as the House as a whole and the Senate, how does this? Um, no, I think it'll. I, I think it'll pass. Okay. I think it'll. I think it'll pass handily. I think it's going to pass with bipartisan support. Do you get any signals from the assembly how they're going to look at it? Well, the um, 
joint author is assembly member uh, Reyes Gomez. And yeah. I, I, I have confidence that she'll be able to shepherd it through the assembly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to change the subject a little bit, uh, I saw that you had posted a letter regarding the council districts down for the supervisors down in right. my district. And of course, the man who watches all things redistricting, uh, Paul Mitchell, immediately uh, commented on that on Twitter. So it's an interesting story that a supervisor, city supervisor, has basically been districted out of her district. Similar thing here happened here in uh, Sacramento with a city council person, and it was decided that there was a recall that was being attempted, and it was decided that the recall had to come from her existing district, not the district that... Uh, that will exist as of the next regular election. This is a similar thing minus the recall, but can you talk about that? It was, it was an interesting and complex discussion as I understood it. So sure, um, every 10 years, uh, legislative districts, supervisorial districts, city council districts are redrawn based on population. And so um, when they're redrawn, they have to be equal or roughly equal in the number of individuals that are in that district. And so the lines change a bit. And so after the lines change a bit, the political dynamic changes as well. So the question is for uh, people running for office, Senate is a very unique example, but, but the supervisorial districts, in this case, the question was asked to supervisorial districts in Orange County, is that when a, when, a, when a supervisor is elected to a particular district number, you know, say for example, district number two, which is a coastal district, right? So the voters say, I'm electing you to district number two in 19, excuse me, I, I won't use 19 anymore, in 20, in, in, in 2020, that's your district, is district number two. And then there's redistricting and district number two turns out not to be a coastal district, but turns out to be a, a district in inland Orange County, right? But the voters who voted for you are on the coast. And then they say, well, but district number two now is in, uh, inner Orange County. And in this case, the Board of Supervisors says, now you represent, you know, Santa Ana and Anaheim. You used to represent, you know, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach. So the question that was posed is, what district do you represent? Do you represent the new number district or do you represent the district you were elected to um, originally? And the answer I believe is the district you represent, just like the district I represent today is the district I was elected to in 2018. Same thing for supervisorial districts. The district that you were elected to, the voters that chose you originally, those are the voters that, that you represent until such time as there's another election. Um, and that's the question that was posed that I posed to the attorney general. Um, I think that the law is pretty clear that you represent the voters that originally chose you versus relatively arbitrary assignment of a different number later on. Um, and the reason that's of consequence is, is that there's a super, there's supervisorial elections going on in Orange County right now. And the supervisors have uh, opined that, that you can't basically that um, you no longer represent the people elected. You represent a whole different group of people because of the, uh, the numbering of the districts. I don't know. Tim, does that all make sense? It does. And I guess there's a, yeah. the whole thing that if, as 
because the district elections are staggered for two years. So it's a four-year term, but it's, I'm not sure down there actually, but it's right. it, is a four, it is a four-year It is a four term. Four-year term. And then the elections are two years and not in one. So there will be areas that may have changed where they will no longer have yeah. a person who is holding, I think, I think Paul said that's called a deferred, uh, a deferral where they no longer have a person that is elected to represent them because that person is now out of office and that their district has moved. And then there's, what is it he called, uh, when people sometimes have two people representing them, I think that's an advancement or something, but it was, it was very interesting and it's a weird idea that I don't think most people would ever think of until, you know, every 10 years there's this. The other thing I thought was interesting is that uh, we're used to the Independent Redistricting Commission, which has existed in California for a decade now, uh, over a decade. And it exists in Sacramento. We have an independent redistricting commission, but they just do it in the old-fashioned way uh, in in Orange County, where you have politicians. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, and I—that's how we used to do it in the legislature. You go into a room. I don't—I don't mean this figuratively. I mean this literally. And you could sit down if you were the party in control. You could sit down with somebody and say, "Here's how I want my district run. Here's here are the areas I want." Um, here are the people I want to represent or here, you know, I think more often than not, politicians chose things like, uh, you know, football stadiums and other things like that rather than people. Uh, but that's how it was done in California uh, prior to independent redistricting. Now we have a very elaborate process that is removed from uh, the politicians, um, removed from those who are in elective office to redraw the lines. And that has, I mean, I happy to talk about all the consequences that 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 entails. You're right. Uh, many areas, many, many areas do not have independent commissions. And so Orange County supervisors sit down and draw their own districts. That's how it goes. Interesting, interesting. Uh, that, that is interesting. And it seems like perpetually somebody's district or somebody's term is going to bridge that period of time when the new districts take effect. Who makes the final call on that locally? Like Tim mentioned, he's got a statewide a commission that does legislative, congressional, et cetera, constitutional officers, B of E, but who makes the call on this, which district uh, that incumbent is going to represent? They, they make the call themselves. I mean, so for example, in Orange County, they say, okay, supervisorial district number two now consists of the following areas. I realize that supervisorial district number two, as of three months ago, was a completely different area, but we're renumbering it. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a three to two vote on the board of supervisors. It's a majority vote on the board of supervisors. That's who makes the final call. Now, if, if they do something that is um, violative of the Voting Rights Act, like, for example, they decide, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to redistrict and we're going to put all um, African-Americans in one area rather than spread them into two different areas for the purpose of, it's called packing, for the purpose of making sure that uh, a community of color, uh, a particularly identified community, has only one has the possibility of only electing one representative. Then that's that's violative of the Voting Rights Act. But you know there are many. I mean, they're violating the Voting Rights Act that has very specific parameters. So you can't and uh, in, basically intentionally uh, create districts that uh, exclude certain members of uh, a minority group, certain, certain groups. So uh, primarily, primarily based on communities of interest. I have, I have one last question. Tim, did you have anything on that you wanted to add or? 
No, I'm good. Okay. I just have one last question. Is this appealable by anyone? If yes. the decision it is. Okay. And is it, it is appealable, but but the but the grounds are, you know, that it, the grounds aren't, you know, I I got cheated because I no longer represent the voters that elected me. The, the grounds are that this violates the Voting Rights Act. Uh-huh. Okay. So go it, that's a federal case, right? Then does it become a federal? It, it, yes, it can be. You, there, I mean, there are state there are state laws that also yeah. um, guide um, how districts are to be drawn, but but most well, I shouldn't say most often. Often they are brought in federal court. That's correct. So there's no move to uh, to have an independent redistricting commission in Orange County. Nobody is drumming uh, drumming I, the, for that. I, I think there 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 are folks that are drumming for it. But I mean, having been a person in the legislature during the time when legislators can redraw their own districts, elected officials like getting reelected. They like drawing their own lines. Um, and so uh, it, just like in the legislature, legislature didn't do that to themselves. The voters by initiative said, we're gonna create an independent redistricting commission. Okay. Uh Tom Umberg, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. We're going to bounce yeah. over to who had the worst week in California. All right. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're not focusing on me. Right. That's good. Good for uh, me. There's always me. next week. So. Always <laughs> next week. Well, I'll never yeah, get invited back. That that may be the cause. <laughs> Maybe the reason. All right. Thanks, Thanks again, Tim. Thank, thank, thank you, John. All right. Yeah, See you guys. You. Have a good Bye -bye. week. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. John, who do you think had the worst week in California politics? Well, on pondering this, I think um, it's pretty easy to say it was Alex Villanueva, sheriff of Los Angeles County, who's very talented in so many ways, but not so much lately. He's really getting getting beaten up. And the latest, the latest uh, issue is not revealing in a timely way uh, a deputy who this happened two years ago, who had a kneel on the head of a of a uh, jail inmate, and seeing the bad optics of this, decided not to try to keep this quiet. He said that he had uh, just learned about it a month after, eight months after. In fact, he learned about it a few days after, according to a complaint filed against him by one of his former top officers, and who now has essentially been forced to retire. Uh, there are other things going on with Villanueva as well. Uh, he had the whole business with the deputy gang problems in Los Angeles. He himself rose through the ranks. Uh, there's a lot there. And the LA Times is on it like a cheap suit because he was after one of their reporters and in fact looked like he later recanted um, going after her in a criminal investigation, feeling that she was a person who got leaks from two people within the department. And he had a graphic with at a press conference with a bunch of arrows pointing at everybody. And she clearly uh, was one of the targets. He later change his mind about that. But the bottom line like is not looking very yeah. good. He backpedaled faster than Michael Jackson. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, that was pretty, pretty terrible. Uh, you know, from a, a First Amendment point of view, it was really, really, I thought, a poor decision on his part. And I think he realized that he had made a mistake. And it actually, that got national news. Yeah. Uh, I, and I'm sure I don't know how to pronounce her. It's Aline Chekmedian, I think, uh, apparently had been reporting on the sheriff's office for a long time and had done yeah. uh, very, very good work and was is very well respected reporter down there, uh, not by him, not by Sheriff Villanueva, but I feel like his specific targeting of her was crossing a line. I mean, he seems like 
a person who has already crossed so many lines. Uh, but uh, this particular case seemed poor. And then I thought it was particularly bad that then the day after he gets spanked for uh, going after this reporter, uh, someone confirmed the story and said, yeah, not only did he see this footage, I'm the one who handed him the DVD and watched yeah. him watch it. So uh, that was- And he like watched it with two other people present. Uh, you know, he clearly got busted. <laughs> I mean, this was not good, you know. You know, there's funny thing, there's a lesson for all of us. There's a lesson here for all public officials. I've never been a public official. There are probably really good reasons for that, but there's some lessons here. One of them is, you know, when you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, fess up fast and get it behind you. Do it quickly. Don't let it drag on somebody, somewhere, somehow, especially in sheriff's departments, as I've seen across the state, they have some of the most vicious internal politicking I think there is in California. These county sheriff departments have just many folks with knives out waiting to be sheriff themselves, waiting to run. Uh, this whole thing was really sort of needless. And you know, you look at Villanueva's background, he's, he's got a lot of talent and this just kind of gives him a, it gives, it puts a black mark on him that hopefully he can expunge it. Hopefully it'll be explained away or, or other things will happen or the evidence won't stand up. But right now he's in the He's in the pickle barrel right now. Yeah, well, and the, and the story itself is pretty awful. I, I was not familiar with this until all of this thumbed up. But, you know, an inmate punched a, a, I think it was a deputy in the face. Yeah. Being escorted, which, sure, that's got to be very unpleasant. But then the deputy overreacted, uh, at least according to what the video seems to show. Uh, he overreacted and, you know, did... Did the same thing uh, that they did to George Floyd, not for as long, but uh, really used a lack of judgment. And instead of reprimanding him for that, uh, Villanueva, you know, apparently, we'll say, I'm sure he denies all this, uh, apparently swept under the rug. So uh -huh. yeah. until, until it came out now. Yeah. Yep. So um, a sheriff of L.A. County, you had the worst week in California politics that we can see. So congratulations. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Congratulations and good luck. Or good luck and good night, however that phrase goes. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. Uh, uh, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you soon. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.